1: Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge cycling podcast with Benji Nice. And on the menu today is an unbelievable Tour de France, stage 13. Again, one of the most exciting stages of this year's tour and Terreno Adriatico stage five, where there's some interesting things to talk about that could have could foreshadow what will happen in the Giro d'Italia in October. Uh, but today's stage was Another very difficult stage climbing all day. As we said yesterday, there were those three categorized climbs Cat 1, Cat 3, and Cat 2. Not hard in themselves, each of them, but collectively in the first 80 kilometers of the stage, you know, this being a 190 kilometer stage, quite a lot of climbing to get done before that intermediate sprint. Then there was a category 3, another category 3, and then if this last climb was taken as a whole, I'm sure it would be an HC climb, but they break it up into two sections and don't count the sort of 10Ks of climbing before the Neuron. It's a colder Neuron, 4.8Ks at 8.3% average gradient, but that doesn't really tell the true story. Really steep in the last, I think, 2Ks, and bonus seconds were on top of there, then a plateau, then 5.5Ks at 7.5% up, up to puy climb, but again, gets steep in the last 1800 meters, that played a big factor in today's race. And just sort of profile and where the intermediate sprint was located and where the bonus seconds were, we couldn't really decide yesterday whether it was going to be a break or whether Jumbo-Visma were going to really try and control proceedings. I think we were leaning more towards a break. That's how I felt when I woke up today. Uh, But, yeah, how did that play out, Benji? And did you think there was any moment where Jumbo-Visma were actually thinking, okay, we can control this today?
0: So basically, at the start of the stage, when they left Châtel-Guillaume, we saw that plenty of people wanted to go into the breakaway. Basically, I think 30 to 40 riders were attacking and attacking every single second. But that mainly happened the moment they started climbing the Col de César, which was that first, first cat climb. Now, on that climb, we also saw that Peter Sagan was trying to move up with some breakaway groups. And we quickly saw that Peter Sagan was not going to make it over these climbs today. And was not going to gain any points at an intermediate sprint, which was one of the things we discussed yesterday. I think I pretty much said that he was going to try and make it and might actually make it because of the downhill sections. But I think you were pretty clear about him not being able to ride.
1: Yeah, I thought yesterday. I just—it's not like he's given up his sprint so that he's climbing really well. Like as if you know, it's twenty eleven Sagan who could climb with Joaquín Rodríguez on some climbs. He. Yeah, even like his Amgen Tour of California, when he like won GC or came second on GC, he he doesn't have those climbing legs anymore from the way I looked at it. And yeah, that became pretty clear today. And I think Quickstep weren't really that keen on letting him go away either. Um, there were these two breakaway groups that formed on the road. And yeah, Benji, you got the first list, but obviously Julian Alaphilippe was there.
0: Yes, certainly. We had a smaller group earlier on that was at the front, including Sharkman, Philippe and so forth. And we had a second group after that, but later on during the stage, they pretty much came together. And these were the riders that were in that. Julien Alaphilippe for DQS. We had Dan Martin for Israel Startup Nation. Simon Geshke for CCC. Mark Soler for Movistar. Cavani as well as Alaphilippe there for that team, De Koenig. We also had quite a few riders of EF Show at the front. Hugh Carty and also Daniel Felipe Martinez and Nelson Paulus. We saw the likes of Pierre Hollande, Tag de once again. He's very active recently. The La Cruz for UAE. We had madua also shockman and Kemna for Bora, and I think Warren Bargilla is the last one on my list together with Sikar. and day, so I left the French people for last. Nonetheless, regarding that group, I feel like they didn't really explode open throughout the stage yet. I feel like it was mainly towards the latter part of the race where certain differences there were made. But we saw earlier on, like you mentioned, that. Jumbo looked to be controlling the race on the first climb of it and it kept the gap at around a minute and a half. Did you see like the same thing? Because I swear I yeah. thought at that point that Jumbo was going to control the race. But yeah,
1: luckily that changed. Yeah, that I saw that too. I, I thought because they held that gap at one minute 20 when the group was actually... And we I think it was one name, I'm not sure if you mentioned him, uh, Remy Cavagna was in that breakaway. And we're going to talk about the... After we've recapped the stage, the differences or the benefits of having a combination of Cavagna and Alaphilippe versus Kemner and Schakman. We'll talk about that after we recap the stage. But Cavagna, obviously, really strong on the flats and sort of low-gradient climbs. He was great at – he was driving a really hard pace. He was he was working a lot on the front. And the gap was remaining constant to a Jumbo-Visma-led peloton so, yeah, both of us, I think, had the same reaction, Benji, like, really, they're going to try and control this for 170Ks to get try and get the bonus sec- seconds at the top of that climb and then be way more tired uh, in the next few days? Like, I didn't think that was a, I didn't think the cost reward was worth it, given how big that breakaway was, and also how the, even if they brought the breakaway back or whatever, the People in the break would still – people would try and go on the break again. Like you've got class riders like Danny Martinez getting in that break. It's not just three do Like yesterday when they had like uh, Niels Pollitt and Walshide, obviously with riders of that calibre on a rolly stage, you think, okay, well, you are going to be able to bring them back. But, yeah. Eventually they did relent and they did the Mitch and Scott let them go and let them gain ten minutes, and at that point, it was very clear a breakaway was going to win because the break was working really well together as well. Um, Marc Soler, I think, got into that break. He had really good legs today, and we'll talk about his absent tactics maybe later as well. But it really kicked off. Where did it really kick off, Benji? Because there was a lull well, after Yumbo decided not to chase. There was a long, a, a long yull, a long lull where no one really went for the intermediate sprint points. Bennett, Sagan, et cetera, didn't get them. Alaphilippe picked them up. But apart from that non-event, nothing really happened uh, for a few hours until people started to pull their turns a little bit harder in that break group, and we saw some cracks in Cavagna. Yes,
0: yeah, certainly, and we certainly saw Cavagna drop off the bag, basically, at that point as well. The moment we hit the top of the Côte d'Angla de Saler, we've got basically a situation where we've got Paul and Sharkman up front, so Bora and Yef. And in the chasing group, you've got quite a few riders from those teams. You've got Kemna from Sharkman's team. You've got, for um, Paulus' team, you've got Martinez and Coffee. So two teams playing a pretty tactical game. When it comes to the other guys, they had to be chasing quite a bit to try and keep the gap at around a minute. But the chasing was not really that active. We had, yeah, obviously those two teams kind of fucking up the chase. And it changed a bit the moment we get to a false flat uphill section before the Cold Neuron. So, not yet on the Cold Neuron, where Sharkman drops Paulus. So, in the second group, they have to change tactics, EF, because obviously they've got Martinez there, they've got Coffee there. And at that point, you do see that Coffee's hitting the front to try and close the gap a bit to the front. And the moment they hit the bottom of that Cold Neuron, there's basically 30 seconds from Sharkman to Paulus and 114 from Sharkman to the second chasing group. That's a group behind Palace. And one of the first things I noticed when going on the call in Neuron is that Sifakov was waiting. It wasn't like he was dropped, but at that moment, we had Ineos in the back pacing. So do you feel like Sifakov waiting was maybe a plan for Ineos, or do you think that he wouldn't be able to do anything anyway?
1: No, my default assumption would be that he got dropped. Because why would why would Sivakov wait at the base of Neuron? Like he's not going to be able to hold the what's required or be that useful at the base. Now maybe maybe he was going to just ride it up really slowly and then it was on that plateau where he was going to help out. But yeah, I don't I don't think Sivakov's in that great form, so I don't really know how much use he can be to to a GC GC guy that's just attacked out of the group. If that was the plan, then that was an indication that Ineos were actually trying to gain time on this stage rather than ride defensively. But I'm not sure if we've mentioned yet. Mark Solaire. he just like mini attacked and surged at the front of this group constantly and dropped himself all the time. Like he dropped himself again today when he was trying to bridge this gap to um, to Sharkman. Like credit to him, I guess, for trying. But I feel like he overestimates his ability, and then underestimates the effort required to bring back someone like Max Schachmann who, yes, has you know, a pretty hard climb and then another cat one afterwards but he had like a minute on him and yeah, he was pulling, it did split the group a little bit Aide was pulling Alaphilippe and then Alaphilippe cracked properly Bagi, Roland Roland was there a little bit in contention but in the end it was Martinez and Kemner, the a rider, the teammate of Shakman on the wheel of Soler. And I think once Martinez realized, or then, then Martinez basically had to do the pull all the way across to Shackman, and brought that gap from a minute 10 to 40 seconds on the, on the Neuron, or maybe even before then, before the Neuron started, actually, there's this false like, uphill section. And then I think Shakman had like uh, 30 seconds, 35 seconds, I want to say at the top of Col cold dinner on, so a nice healthy margin given that there was that false flat and downhill section, just rolly terrain. And he had Leonard Kemner, Martinez, stuck right on his wheel. So got the ball rider up front, riding as high as he can Schuchman. then his teammate Kemner sitting up, getting all the draft as possible because it was not all climbing on Martinez' wheel, and Martinez just... grinding him down and chasing Shuckman. And I think he did it in a pretty measured way, actually. it was really professional from Martinez. Like, he didn't try and go across as quickly as possible. He knew the climbs coming up were really steep. He knew he was probably going to be quicker than Shuckman by X amount of seconds on the puy Marie. So, yeah, he did it in a really measured way, a calculated way, and that saved his legs in the end. But at what point did he bring back... Shakman, Benji, was it with like two Ks to go, eighteen hundred meters to go, on the Puy Marie? He he'd had the gap at about ten seconds, but it was pretty clear that he was going to be able to bring back Shakman when he wanted to.
0: They basically caught up with Shakman at about eight hundred, at eighteen hundred meters to go, and at that point, Shakman kind of stayed in the wheel of both Martinez and Kemna, but Martinez just kept pacing. He was not like Kemna. Now it's your turn. I've caught your teammate. So. Martinez clearly knew that he had energy at that point to try and finish it off. Hey, Chemno did try a sneaky attack there, just on the right of Martinez going past him. And I think that basically was a death sentence for Sharkman, who was still slightly on the back of that and basically dropped off a second after. And at that point, we saw that Martinez, well, responded to that quite quickly, but it was from the saddle, which made me doubt whether he had it, but he came back quite quickly. So at that point, did you think that Martinez or Kemlin was going to win it?
1: I thought Martinez was probably going to win it unless they slowed down enough for Sharkman to attack and then uh, Martinez to have to close that down. The problem was, yeah, they had a two-on-one in theory with 1,500 metres to go, 1,800 metres to go, but Sharkman was cooked. The climb was so steep that a draft was... Uh, not really negligible. I'm pretty sure Camner attacked at like 18, 17 Ks an hour. So we're getting close to where drafting isn't really that important, except psychologically. And Camner's initial attack, I actually do think it was more than just seeing what Martinez would do. I think the ease with which Martinez closed that initial attack down from Kamner, uh had me a little bit concerned for his chances, but yeah Martinez played it perfectly because he just kept pushing to the line he kept he just let it out the whole way. it dropped Sharkman pretty much off the wheel with maybe six hundred and fifty seven hundred to go. Martinez just went over to the left the barriers on the left-hand side as we looked at it from front on. He had Camner just off his wheel to the left-hand side. I think he must have slowed it down a little bit at that point because he knew he'd dropped Sharkman off the wheel. He'd been pulling for I don't know how long, like 15 kilometres or something, all on his own to bring back Sharkman, and had Kamner sitting in the wheel the entire time. And then with, I think, 125 metres to go, maybe 100, it was hard to tell with the road markings not matching up with what the TV said. Kamner attacked to the left-hand side of Martinez's Gapped him a little bit, actually, when you look at the overhead shot. and But then you just saw Martinez clawing him back. It was a steep finish. He attacked at like 19, 20 k's an hour. Martinez came up to him, came next to him then on the right-hand side. And at that point, we knew it was over because Kemner got back in the saddle. And Martinez took a magnificent stage win. The Criterium open a general classification winner taking the stage in the Tour de France 2020, stage 13, after... An incredibly strong performance. He was the strongest rider in that break because, well, he was clearly stronger than Kamner because he beat him in the sprint after he'd been chasing Shackman down the entire time. And it's still a masterclass from Bora tactically. You know, Maybe Kamner went a little bit early at the end, but the tactics of Bora was fantastic. Sending Shackman up the road like that. I mean, you've got to have the legs to do it, but it really put Camet in the best position possible for them to win or Sharkman in the position to win if no one was able to chase. But yeah, did you how did you see that sprint, Benji? Did you I think you were kind of picking Martinez from what you were saying to me, just the way he was looking when he was chasing down Sharkman, even from two, three Ks to go.
0: Yeah, that's basically because I'm always trying to support the underdog a bit because I enjoy that personally. And at that point I felt like he was the underdog because of the numeric advantage of Bora. Nonetheless, as you mentioned, I do feel like the Borom strategy was very well done because EF tried exactly the same, but Paulus just was not good enough compared to Sharkman because otherwise, Martinez would have been having that same advantage that Kemna had if, for example, Paulus was up front and Sharkman was still in that chasing group. So it's basically two teams that tried exactly the same tactic, one as a response to the other because Borah responded basically to the EF tactic, and well, one team came out stronger with the rider that they send up front, so I found it really, well, intriguing to see similarities between those two tactics, and you see that it doesn't matter that, for example, if your tactic fails, you can still put it right, because EF's tactic was clearly to send Paulus up front and try and put Martinez in a seat, but He actually had to do way more work because of it, because Paulo's dropped, and they put Bora in that pole position by accident that way, you know.
1: Bora, I mentioned this at the top of the show. The difference between having, say, Kemner and Schachman and Alaphilippe and Cavagna, and here is why. Maybe we spoke about underdogs. Alaphilippe is not going to be the underdog. He's going to be the opposite of that. The favorite in pretty much any break he goes into. He was the favorite before today's stage started. I thought that was. And a short favourite too, by the way. And I thought that was insane because this was such a hard stage, a proper mountain stage too with steep climbs in the, in the end. And I'm not sure throughout his career we've really seen Alaphilippe be able to, to drop people like Hugh Carthy or Sivakov or Martinez or someone like Kamner on a Cat 2, then a Cat 1 that is that steep. Uh, we saw it briefly where he was able to follow wheels on not so steep climbs in 2019 Tour, but I got to say this is a completely different level Tour to that. Uh, I'll talk. We'll talk about that in a, in a separate podcast, but we are seeing this Tour de France is a completely different level watts per kilo numbers wise. I think to last year, the VAM last year in some of the climbs, not crazy at all. Whereas Dauphiné, we saw it, we got a taste of it in stage five, and yeah, today the the numbers are big on these steep climbs. Uh, but we'll get to the GC guys in a second. But what I meant by Alaphilippe and Cavagna was everyone's going to look at Alaphilippe as the favourite. Everyone's going to make sure Cavagna does the majority of the work or the lion's share of the work establishing the break, and, and he did that, and he's very useful, and he was extremely useful in helping establish establish that break and ensure Alaphilippe was there and maybe let Alaphilippe sit in the wheels a bit more. But at the end of the day, Cavanaugh is not going to be there in the finale on Neron to, or before the Neron to go up the road because he got dropped before then. And that's not a criticism of him. That's just he's a not that sort of rider. Whereas when you've got someone like Shakman and Kemner, you've got Shakman who can actually get up the climbs and attack. And Camner, who's more of a pure climbing guy, more of like a Tour de Swiss GC candidate in the future, and no one's going to look at them as having to do the lion's share of the work when they are in the break either. Like Camner was skipping a lot of turns, I think, before the Neron, and Shackman was doing a fair bit of work. So yeah, I think sometimes the combination of rider styles can really work in a stage like this to your advantage. Paulus and Martinez is another like. Pretty good combo, actually. power seemed to be quite handy on the descent and the, the false flat as well. Obviously, got popped on the climb proper, but yeah, that's just something I was I had a little think about after the stage finished about why you'd almost prefer a Schapman Camner combo to Alaphilippe Cavagna, even though that sounds crazy given the two sets of names are, one's much larger than the other. While all this was happening, while
0: Martinez was finishing and uh, taking his crown home, winning a stage after winning the Dauphiné. We had a GC battle, but I have to be honest, we didn't see much of it. I feel like the priority of French TV was basically that, first of all, the breakaway, which was good because that battle was actually really intriguing to follow. But then it was French riders that dropped from the peloton. And then it was the green jersey because Bennett was so much on screen today. And then it was the GC. Don't you feel like that's roughly the same when it comes to priority here?
1: Yeah, so I got no problem with filming a you know a two up sprint like that between Martinez and Camner. Like that was really in the death rows, and also in the last K, you, you couldn't be sure that they wouldn't attack each other early either. So I got no problem with them filming that a lot. My issue is, why are you filming Roman Bardet, Nicolas Eda, Philippe, random people strung out across the rows? Sam Bennett, as you said, just stop. Like. Irrelevant to what's happening. So we're pretty sure there was a selection on the Col de Neuron because Ineos were driving it really hard. I think it was it was Kwiatkowski driving it, uh, Dylan Van Baal, Luke Rowe, and uh, Amador and Viejo had been working pretty hard in advance of that climb. But, yeah, it was, it was then Kwiatkowski driving it. And I think it was then Carapaz attacked on the Neuron. Now I'm remembering because, yeah, I was so focused <laughs> on the stage win. Carapaz attacked. I started screaming on the live stream, don't chase, Yumbo. do not chase, because that's exactly what Ineos would want them to do, by Bernard Domestique chasing Carapaz, who's honestly not relevant on GC, so you don't need to be chasing him, he's not in contention. But they did chase, and not because <laughs> they cared about Richard Carapaz, it was just because they put Tom Dumoulin on the front to mash, and mash he did on the Neuron. And that kind of it created a selection. Of the GC guys, but no one was distanced except for Guillaume Martin. Guillaume Martin, who was in third position on GC, the confidence rider, right, lost over the top of the neuron 20 seconds on that GC group. Miguel Ángel, Lopez, Port, Landa, Bernal, Quagaccia, Roglic. They were all there. Uh, we don't really, we didn't get enough shots of them close up, and when you, you got the helicopter shots, I mean, when an attack is happening, you can see, okay, who was like losing the wheel a little bit. We we didn't see enough to really draw any firm conclusions, but Ineos drove it really hard, like they did in Dauphiné stage two, and then Carapaz attacked. And I have to say, surely the plan was for Bernal to counter attack Benji. That's what I thought, because I, and I speak about this stage constantly. Stage 19, Tour de France last year, Thomas set up the Bernal counter on Isra. And that had to be why Carapaz was attacking, because unless he's just. Selfishly decided to go for um, to gain time on GC because he thought he felt good, but the reason Bernal was never going to attack is Bernal is not going to ever attack if Seb is still there. I've I decided that after stage two of the Dauphiné, Seb is around Roglic, Egan Bernal is not going to attack because. He he just doesn't really have the separation, like the the speed to get any separation. And Koussi is just right on it. Koussi is super alert and he was still there. But Dumoulin led them over the descent. Baron McLaren came to the front actually because Dumoulin was a slow descender and they were trying to pace to make sure that Guillaume Martin was losing more time to Mikael Landa. On the plateau, and for the majority of the Puy Marie, we've got to be honest with you guys, we don't really know what was happening too much there. Because, as Benji said, it's 2020, and we still don't have a split screen between the break and the peloton. And I've seen it in other races. The technology is definitely, definitely like possible. Like I feel like we should have a split screen because a lot of the Tour de France is very, very boring and irrelevant, and you'd never watch a you'd never watch a minute of the replay. In years to come of the first 30 k's of stage 10
0: yeah no, I, I swear they have the technology because i i swear that i saw someone show a technology by a french tv that you can follow different cameras online so why do they not either make this public or eurosport doesn't use it i don't know i don't know what the reason is behind it but i swear it exists i swear they have different cameras that are already well, obtainable online if you have a French TV account or something. It's something like that. So, why would it not be used better to produce better content? Like, oh, I don't get it. I generally don't get it. And today it really annoyed me because the moment we saw real action in the GC, I basically, it turned off a bit for me. And I don't know if that's for everybody, but I was obviously hyped for the breakaway at that point. but. Regarding the GC, it sometimes felt like the race didn't find it important, so why should I? While all the days before, I was so hooked on the GC battle, but today, it really turned off a bit because of that.
1: Yeah, and I know it's hard for them, sort of like usually if if you have to choose between one of the two cameras, at the same time as Kemner and Martinez having like 300 meters to go, Pogacha attacked on the Puy Marie. And Bernal, I don't even, we don't know for sure. I don't know whether Carapaz was there or not, but Pogacar attacked. Koos followed him uh, pacing for Roglic, but he was sort of, that's the value of having a domestique like Koos, um, just being able to at the end of a really hard stage like that when they're doing monster, Pogacar's doing monster numbers. I'll look at their on Strava later, maybe get back to you. Uh, but that, that dropped Bernal. So Bernal's getting dropped while Koos is still there. So Koos has been hot and cold in stages but when it's counted like today he was really good and then Pogaccia and Roglic immediately started relaying I think from all that I saw they started relaying really well because Pogaccia he was not even on top five GC I don't think he was like 44 seconds behind he still had that big gap to make up he knew it was unlikely that he was going to be able to drop Roglic who looked pretty looks strong it was back to robot Roglic just looking just when I say strong, I actually mean you're physically strong on the bike, like he's grabbing the handlebars and he's just mashing that high cadence. His core looks so tight. Um, yeah, sweat's dripping, just just a real vision, actually. And it's kind of the opposite to the frume washing machine, even though they've got a similar cadence when they're surging on these steep sections. But Pogaccia was in his wheel and they were relaying and, yeah, Pogaccia was mouth open looking like he was kind of struggling but i think he, he's like shakman when people were in the live chat were saying oh shakman looks done i'm like shakman looks like that in the neutral zone um that's just so right he looks like mouth open tongue wagging head bobbing it bobbing etc and pogaccio can just somehow even when he looks cooked dig into some reserve that he has and just he can definitely stay on the – he stayed on Roglic's wheel pretty easily. But, yeah, tactically it made sense for them to relay because Roglic was able to gain – trying to gain time. Bonal was properly cracking on this stage. Um, like, they would have known that probably over the, on the radios. I've got to say, and I, if, you, if you say I'm biased, I'm shutting this pod down, Benji. Richie Port is the third strongest climber in this year's Tour de France.
0: <laughs> <Just kidding.
1: laughs> he was the sole rider making an indent on Roglic and Pogacha. He was pacing back, I think, Lopez and Landa. And I think Uran was quite a way dropped behind. Quintana got dropped, actually. Not a great day for him. He crashed into a, a hedge earlier. And yeah, Port was pacing back Roglic and Pogaccia. We saw him do something similar on a previous stage. I think he tried something on Dauphine when he was tired after all those French races. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know about Port doing that because he's like before the stage, he was like two minutes behind on GC. The the chance of Port coming first or second in a a world where the two Slovenians come first or second is like probably it it can't, there is no world where that happens. It's like 0.001% chance. So Really, the two Slovenians are not Port's competition. Um, now, sure, he's able to gain time on Quintana, Urán, and Bernal, but he's pacing back Landa, who's a position ahead of him in GC. He's pacing back uh, Miguel Ángel López, who's thirty-five seconds ahead of him in on GC. Now, maybe Port will do pretty well in the TT, but yeah, like it was an awesome show of strength from Port, and I'm, I'm loath to criticize the man who's. Having almost career best performances again at this sort of later stage in his career, when he's probably moving, he's moving next year, and we kind of rubbish him a lot. He gets rubbished a lot because he crashes out, and yeah, he was putting time back into Roglic and Pagacci. He obviously he always mo- misses the initial move, like that goes without saying. If there's a crosswind or if there's an attack, he always misses the initial attack.
0: Regarding Richie Porte, I do have to note that. He's basically the only GC hope of the team right now because halfway the stage, we had a crash where Moloma crashed out. I think we forgot to mention that, but Alka Moloma's out of the race. So what was the only guideline there for Trek at the moment. And as you said, he's switching team next year. He has actually said that this is the last Grand Tour that he's going to be a leader in, that he's going to move to a super domestique role. And that is rumored to be back to Ineos
1: or Israel. So one of those two, apparently. But Roglic and Pogacar kept relaying. And I think then Roglic sprinted and Pogacic couldn't come out of his wheel. It looked like Roglic had a lot left in the tank, to be honest. I think he could have won that bunch sprint against all the GC guys. And Pogaccio we've seen, he's got a pretty good kick and he couldn't come out of his wheel. So he was probably on the limit. Bernal, he lost a lot of time. Let's let's see how much time he lost on the line to um, Pogacic. They came in at six minutes and five seconds behind Martinez. Bernal lost 38 seconds on Roglic and Pogaccio, who got same time, and ooh, 25 seconds, if my math serves me correctly, on Richie Porte, who actually gaffed Lopez in, uh, by about three seconds. Lander, same time as Port. Uran was same time as Bernal. And Adam Yates, he got dropped already on the Neuron, made his way back on the descent, I think, and then he got lost more time again, and he's lost... Uh, he actually moved up a spot on GC because the big losers were Roman Bardet and Guillaume Martin. Guillaume Martin moving from third to twelfth, now three minutes back. Roman Bardet moving from fourth to eleventh, three minutes uh, three minutes back as well. Roglic staying first, still forty four seconds against Pagace. So. Now is it time with Pogacar moving up to second? Are we going to see the two Slovenians have to fight each other rather than work together? Because if Pogacar wants to win this year's tour, he now there's only one man ahead of him that he has to get off his wheel. Bernal goes down to third, 15 seconds behind Pogacar and a full minute behind Roglic. So, yeah, considering optimistically for a, a Bernal fan, you'd say, oh, he, he only needs a minute and a half against Roglic in the TT. He's got two and a half minutes to make up. And Urán somehow moved up to fourth. A minute and 10 back. Quintana stays same time. Not a good day for him. Lopez moves up to sixth. Yates seventh. Lander eighth. Port ninth. And Henrik Maas having an okay tour de France, actually, coming 10th in what is a very high-level tour.
0: The thing about Bernal is that I feel like he is unable to respond to these accelerations of Roglic. Well, Pogacar and then Roglic in the wheel. And he does not have that acceleration to follow. and. It looked like he slowly but surely made his way back. I think he passed a few riders, Urán as well, on his way up. But towards the end, he boinked once again, and that's when Urán basically came on his wheel again on the finish line. I believe that, once again, as we said before, Cordalos will be more beneficial for him. To be a longer climber, you can't really just attack away like crazy, like uh, Apogachá did right here. But then again, I don't feel like it was overly explosive by Pogaccia today because he basically at the front, Rolwich in the wheel, and the rest was suffering so hard that they dropped. And I'm unsure whether Bernal is as strong as we were hoping towards the next two mountain stages. I believe I would have expected him to be losing less time on today's stage. But then again, if we look at last year's Tour de France, he was on 2 minutes 52 of yellow after stage 13, but I feel like that's not a fair comparison, maybe, because Philippe was still in yellow at that point. So he was basically only a minute and a half behind his teammate, Thomas, and we've got 40 seconds on, well, Kreisweg last year then. So, he was behind as well after stage 13, so it's not like it's totally lost for Bernal, but the difference here is that, well, the first guy in GC is not his teammate, it's not Thomas, it's Roglic here, and He's got a time trial that is coming on stage 20, on which I do feel like Roglic will be better than Bernal. While I don't feel like Roglic will murder everybody, I expect him to take a significant amount of time on Bernal, maybe a minute or something. So Bernal would need to cross two minutes in the next two mountain stages on Roglic, which I see less likely to happen. But we've got Pogaccio who moves from 7 to 2nd, and makes a good move in GC, but doesn't come any close to Roglic. So the real question is here, whether this is just a stage, like we said yesterday, that is very applicable to Roglic and Pogacar, because last year's VELTA all climbs like this, very steep towards the end, mid-range, four to eight kilometers in in length throughout the stage. And yeah, it genuinely fits them perfectly. And we saw that once again today. And I think that's a real difference though with the really long climbs, but there's only one really long climb I note, and that's called La Los. I think Colombier is pretty long as well, but I recall it being quite steep as well, Colombier compared to the Co de La Los. I'm not overly sure of that, so don't take my word of that.
1: Yeah, there's getting out kicked in the finale because Roglic, you know, in Roglic last year when Valverde was on peak form, on Los was it Los Muchachos climb, like Roglic and Valverde were, were sprinting against each other. To the best in the world at that sort of finale. and yeah, you'd expect maybe he gets gap lose five loses five to 10 seconds because he just can't respond in the last 400 meters but this was more than not being able to, to respond to uh, an anaerobic acceleration. This was getting dropped with minutes left in the climb and looking in trouble also on the neuron, zigzagging across the road. At the end of the climb and then when you looked when the camera showed it briefly after the climb he was fucked like he was slumped over the bike like couldn't stand up people were around him he looked completely cooked i just saw a tweet uh, i think it might have been from la flamme rouge uh, our favorite or ITV, I can't remember. I think it was La Flamme Rouge that said, yeah, and I was like, my numbers are fine. The the level from these guys is just too high. So if Benal had just been dropped 5, 10 seconds off Roglic and Bagacha and he was third over the line, I would not be concerned for Col de la Luz. I'd be like, yeah, he still is going to be uh, sweet for that. But the fact that Richie Port and Miguel Angel Lopez are going past him and doing what I expected him to do, just losing like a little bit of time to him, you know, to Pogacar and Roglic um, in the end, like they lost, Port only lost 13 seconds. Like Bernal should be with the Port group. That's what's concerning. So yeah, something to definitely watch. Now we've had a
0: wonderful stage today, a bit of a meh coverage, but let's hope that's better on tomorrow's stage. After a stage that starts in Clermont Ferrand. And throughout the parkour, there's, well, there's some climbing. It's not a, A flat terrain and towards the end there's surely hills before the finish line. But when it comes to the intermediate sprint, it's 37 kilometers from the line, from the starting line, not the finishing line. And there's a small fourth cat just before that. So I'm guessing that we might see Bora just hammering it down maybe on this fourth cat already to try and make Bennett suffer and try and get these intermediate sprint points. But are they going to be able to control 37 kilometers of Breakaway riders before that.
1: I'd expect tomorrow, yeah, Breakaway to go again. It just has Breakaway written all over it. The climbs aren't hard enough for GC to really, yeah, for anything to be of value for them. And Ala Philippe was favourite for today's stage. He was like joint favourite with Roglic for yesterday's stage. But this is the stage that Ala Philippe should have been targeting and our boy Benoit Cosnefroy. except he or my boy. T can't get over a cat too. so even if he using the brake, he'd probably get dropped there. But yeah, this this finishes with 1.3 k's at five and a half percent in with ten kilometers to go, and then another climb, the Côte de la Croix Rousse, 1.5 k's at four and a half percent with five k's to go. That is screaming Alaphilippe to me. And maybe even but he'll be pretty tired after today. Maybe the little bit punchier riders like Greg Van Avermaet and Trentin as well, I'd expect to see them there. But, yeah, it's whether who gets in the break. If those guys get in the break, I'd expect a pretty large breakaway group once again because if I'm Jumbo-Visma, why would you care about controlling this? And Ineos certainly don't have the firepower to, well, yeah, the profile, the profile doesn't really suit anything happening on GC.
0: I think we might just see a close-down race towards the intermediate sprint in the sense that we'll see attacks. We'll see Bora pays on that fourth cat climb, for example. We'll see the intermediate sprint happen, depending on whether Bennett and so forth is still there. I'm not sure. But after that, the call to be all is where I think the break will start forming properly because, well, if Alaphilippe attacks beforehand and Sagan's with Alaphilippe in the break, then the Koenig in the peloton won't be happy with that because, yeah... Again, we'll be getting into intermediate sprint points. So it's a bit of a double side story between Bora and the Koenig. It's going to be interesting to see what the tactics are there. I think Alaphilippe Philippe and Cavani are both from this region. I could be wrong on that because I swear that Cavani is called the TGV of Clement Ferrand. So uh, a fast train from Clement Ferrand. So I'm guessing that Cavani will go into the breakaway. That's my uh, first prediction. And towards the finish line, I'm indeed thinking that Alaphilippe Philippe will try and go for the stage. And. Well, I don't want to say it again, but Mark Hirschi, honestly, like at this point, I'm going to call him out for any punching stage out there.
1: Yeah, Hershey, unfortunately for Adam Yates and Roman Bardet, they still haven't lost enough time on GC. Probably not hard enough, those final two climbs for them. I like Greg Van Avermaet uh, tomorrow. I'm assuming that Shaqman will be too tired. Um, I think Paulus might try and get in the break once again as well. Yeah, I really like uh, GVA to try and dial back the clock. I think he can get over that cap 2 final with a breakaway, and then, yeah, those climbs should be well within his wheelhouse. But if Philippe is there, it's going to be hard work. I assume we're going to see Sunweb throw as many riders into the break as possible once again. But that's enough of today's stage and tomorrow's stage for the Tour de France. A quick wrap-up of the Tirano-Adriatico Stage 5 stage, which... Had a few things we might want to think about for this year at Italia. We mentioned it yesterday, it finished in Sassoteto, 11.9 Ks, 7.1% mountaintop finish. It was a rolly stage up to that point.
0: In regards to what happened at the start of the stage, well, we basically had a genuine Tireno breakaway, once again, including Canola, fourth day, I think, in Tireno, so quite crazy. I think he's seven, uh, second in KOM after this stage as well. So he's surely showing himself. I think he was fighting together with Carretero, the person who was also in the breakaway yesterday, with Matthews. Regarding the other people in the breakaway, one thing I noted really was that at the start of the stage, Radio Tour, well, not Radio Tour of the Tour de France, but the Tirena one, basically called out that Van Poel was in the breakaway. And I found it really weird because Van Poel in the breakaway on a mountain stage, honestly really weird. And then it called out that that it was wrong and that Bernard was in the breakaway. Now, I turned on the TV about an hour later, well, the GCN Race Pass TV, because I don't think they broadcast it anywhere else, and I saw Vanderpool in the breakaway, so I'm really confused whether Vanderpool was already in the breakaway or whether he bridged up, but towards the end of the stage, that honestly really didn't matter, because towards the uh, end climb, the break was just getting caught already, so... At that point, it was GC time, and the GC teams were ready, in the sense that we saw Evadication first, right there, pacing for, well, their leader, GC leader Woods, who was still in the lead from last stages. Well, two stages ago, he won. So that's where he gained that jersey. In regards to early attacks here, well, one thing I noticed a few days back, well, yesterday already as well, is that Nibali dropped out really early yesterday. He had the attack of Yates yesterday and Nibali was gone. And today we saw Nibali attack with about six kilometers to go on the climb, on the Sasseteto climb. And at that point, I was like, yeah, Nibali. Okay, awesome. Nibali fan in the house. So I was hyped. But I also realized that this is probably typical Nibali where he just attacks and then drops a second after. And he was caught by the group behind him. And Then attacks followed, Micah, Accelerate, Woods, Thomas, Mosnada, Brambilla, Yates, and Nibali was off the back. Do you feel like he's in any form regards to a potential Giro participation? Because he's doing the Giro for potential GC at Trek, but do you feel like those teammates won't be in doubt whether their leader can actually succeed? Because if you're riding at Trek right now, and you see that your leader is looking like this, and dropping with every attack on a climb, you must be like, well, I could probably do better.
1: If Nebly is single-figure odds going to the 0 I'll be betting very, very heavily against that. I think the field is looking actually quite strong. The Yates attack, Simon Yates is looking really good. It now seems like a very sensible idea, actually, for Mitchell and Scott to let Masnada take a little bit of time yesterday so that Hamilton could get the stage win because the gap was maybe 10, 15 seconds and then Vlasov, Thomas and Micah were... They were relaying reasonably well. I think it was those mainly those three, Benji. And then Yates just kept extending the gap out to like 30 seconds. And then when they only really started, I think as Vlasov attacked that group a little bit and then got brought back, it maybe slowed the chase. When they were relaying, they couldn't really bring it much back below, I think, 28 seconds it seemed. And it ended up Simon Yates winning after going clear from, from quite a few Ks out. A 35 second gap to Thomas, who won the sprint for the line with the same time as Micah. They actually dropped Vlasov, four seconds into Vlasov. Wilco Keldeman, 54 seconds back. James Knox came out of nowhere, actually, to come 58 seconds back. He was nowhere in the picture, and it was Masnada who was, I think, either chasing that group or he. Yeah, Masnada was up there, but he obviously got dropped pretty badly. It was Brambia that uh, was the trek rider who got dropped sort of after Nibali. And Mike Woods lost the blue leaders jersey because he was a minute and 46 back, going over the same time as Louis Menchies. He was looking like he probably won't ever come back, Louis Menchies, to his top 10 Tour de France form. But that meant that the GC, Simon Yates, moved up six positions, uh, to 1st on GC, 16 seconds ahead of Micah. Micah was relaying quite a lot, or pulling quite a lot, actually, um, almost to his own detriment. But you know, in the end, he's got the same time as Thomas anyway. There might have been bonus seconds on offer that he missed out on. Thomas moves up to 3rd on GC, 40 seconds behind Yates. Lassov, the big disappointment of the day, despite moving up to 4th from 8th, 50 seconds behind Yates. Maznada and Kelderman both about a minute back, 5th and 6th, and Knox 7th, a minute and 21 back, and Woods lost the blue jersey, now 8th. And I expected that to happen. You've got to remember Mike Woods is a classics rider. That's how I view him. He's not a GC rider. What did you see from Vlasov today? And for a man, Benji, you look at his Mon Two numbers, that Mon Two challenge he won. Are you, if you're a starter, are you concerned by... Lasso's performance in a climb that I thought was going to really suit him. I wouldn't be concerned. Like, this is one occasion and he's lost four seconds. So,
0: towards Micah and Thomas. So, it's not a crime. Yates had, well, typically Yates' benefit of attacking earlier on and then people tend to respond later and then realize that they can never catch up anymore. Yates was very strong today. You were a bit, well, unsure whether that was going to happen today. I felt like Yates and Vlazov were the potential favorites. You had Vlazov, I think as well. I feel like he's claimed the throne at Astana for the Giro because today Fulsang was basically a domestique for him at the last part where he was able to, so
1: that was pretty clear to me. And Nibali lost 4 minutes today on Simon Yates. So I guess it's hard to read into that because I feel like once he lost 30 seconds, he just would have literally stopped pedaling because he yeah, would have just ridden it in for the Giro, I think Thomas is looking like he should be the favourite because he should be able to follow on a lot of the climbs with everyone except maybe, you know, Yates does have a sneak attack here or there. But those three TTs, yeah, I mean Giro is a lot different to the a mountaintop finish in a one on stage five of a one week stage race. I know that, but I doubted Thomas's form a lot, and I was almost ready to ride him off, and he's looking absolutely fine at Terreno. He's looking great. So I think if there's a tour that Ineos are going to be most competitive in and have the best chance to win this year, I think it's Thomas at the Giro because, yeah, their team is strong. Dennis, Ganna, they lost Dunbar, which does suck, but, yeah, Puccio, it's a really nice team, and Thomas is looking really good. But tomorrow's stage for Terreno it's into Gallia and looks to me like it's going to be, I think, a sprint just because they put the most interesting part of the stage in the first, yeah, 90 kilometers, 170 kilometer stage. And the last 70 kilometers, I don't know if there's been a glitch in the profile readout, but it's literally pancake flat. And I think that's a function of it going uh, towards the coast rather than there's this sort of little climby section at the start, 6Ks at 3.7%. 3K is at 4.3%. There's going to be no GC movement. And uh, I think this is going to be Fernando Gavidia taking the stage win.
0: That's actually a pretty good guess. Um, I, f- I hope that we see Gavidia up to standards. He wasn't bad necessarily to first sprints, but I want to see a, a fierce battle between the sprinters. And if we look at the map of the race, it's quite interesting because you're right, they go towards the coast and they basically ride... Well, up and down the coast, like five times. It's a triathlon out and back up the coast. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Nonetheless, I um, I would also say Gaviria because he's going to try and uh, battle back after two losses against Akamon, because, yeah, he will need a victory in World Tour here pretty soon, because it always touches mentally if you can't win as a sprinter. But additionally, I um, obviously also have Akamon up there, because, yeah, let's be real. He won two stages already. He's going to to win this one again. And it's going to be a first battle between those two, I'm afraid. Well, not necessarily afraid, but I think that it's going to be like that.
1: The first two stages didn't really change my opinion of Ackerman and Gaviria. I still think Gaviria is a better sprinter than Ackerman. Uh, Gaviria just, you know, Ackerman was lucky to win that first sprint. If Gaviria just holds his line on the barrier, he wins that sprint. And yeah, I think UAE got to do a better job tomorrow putting Gavidia into better position, and he, he himself has to do that as well. But that's terreno Adriatico. We think it'll come down to a sprint, so I'm going to tune into the last 10 kilometres of it. Don't hate me. There's a lot going on with the Tour de France. You might be asking if you made it this far, where's your Giro Rosa preview, Benji and Lantern? And like most things, it's not our fault. The We wanted to do a Giro Rosa preview, a full preview, if you've been in in you know talking to me or whatever on Instagram or something you'll know that the full start list wasn't announced until like in the last 24 hours so it's pretty hard to do a preview of a, a race without a start list also there's no live coverage at all of the Giro Rosa so speaking about issues with live coverage the Giro Rosa literally doesn't have any there's just going to be like extended highlights or something from the race organisers sent to various broadcasters, I think outside of Australia, South Pacific, it's GCN Race Pass. And then I'm pretty sure SBS, for us Australians, we, SBS bought the rights, our free-to-air provider. Um So I think they're like 50-minute highlights, which is good, like better than Flesh Wallonia and Liège Women's, which I think had like three-minute highlights of a some dude on an upside-down iPhone 4 with a cracked front screen in, in 480p showing Marianne Voss going at nuclear speed and she's two pixels because she's going too quickly. Um, it's better than that, but still very frustrating given that last year I was able to watch the race live. It was actually the race that got me into posting my YouTube videos actually in July last year. So it is a race dear to my heart. I think Lizzie Banks winning that stage last year was a stage I posted a video on that I was really proud of and that really got me going. Um, so yeah, that's a shame. That's why we haven't put a preview out. We will be talking about the stages, but they might be a day late because we have to then, you know, I'm going to go, go to sleep now Benji's going to keep working. I don't know when the highlights will even be up and I'll probably find 50 minutes tomorrow to watch them and then talk about it probably close to 24 hours after it finishes.
0: Yeah, I've got the same feeling. It's a bit of a shame that there's no full broadcast, but we have to uh, work with what we have, unfortunately. I want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. We're pretty happy with, we're very happy with how it's doing, and we're also very happy that we get a lot of constructive feedback in what we can do better, and we're trying to work on the stuff that, the little details that we want to get perfect, you know, and... Yeah, it's great that you give that to us in a constructive way that we can actually apply that properly. Additionally, all the nice words in the comments, great on YouTube and such, on Twitter as well, some Instagram DMs as well. So thank you very much. If you do like the podcast and you're listening to this on Apple, then you can rate us. We have quite a few ratings already. It's quite crazy, honestly. Unexpected to me personally, but yeah, it's great. And I want to thank you again. So tomorrow to the France, tomorrow to Reno, and potentially Giro Rosa stage one, if I can find proper highlights. So that's it. Ciao.